2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll begin there in verse number 13, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Probably familiar words. Uh, We've read this a number of times over the last number of months, uh, but we will read it again this morning. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your long-suffering and your grace that's been extended toward us. And Lord, as we've read this morning already, we thank you for uh, your choice of salvation. We rejoice this morning to know that a salvation that is authored and finished by you is a completed salvation. It is a work that is done by God alone and not by us. I pray, Father, you'd help us as we study this morning that we would see the great truths and the great doctrine that's contained not only in the scriptures, uh, but in the confession as we study as well. Father, we thank you that we're privileged to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these, this time of year when we have been able to celebrate the birth of our Savior and even as important as that, celebrate our redemption through his perfect life, uh, his perfect fulfillment of the law, and his willingness to go to the cross and to die in the place of his people. And Lord, may we rejoice in that constantly. May we be diligent in our praise and our thanksgiving, and may we give you the glory alone for everything that is done today. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I pray. Amen. All right, so we are at chapter 17, paragraph 2 of the Confession. And this morning we're going to deal with the foundations of this perseverance. Uh, the foundations of perseverance. So if you want to go ahead and look at paragraph two, uh, we're going to read that and then we're going to take each one of the main um, expressions or statements in this paragraph and then kind of explain them and then look at a couple other passages, uh, especially those that are footnoted uh, that speak to each one of these. So paragraph two says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. The oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So this perseverance we've been learning over the last few weeks is a certainty. Uh, This is not something that is hoped for. This is not something that we're uh, living with some sort of expectation, but we are living with an assurance that the saints of God will in fact persevere unto the end. 
Now, there are a number of considerations we looked at in paragraph one that kind of lead us to this. And the confession writers put this paragraph number two, and oftentimes we think about a foundation and how a foundation is usually the beginning, po- the beginning part of something, and, and it is. Uh, but the, the, the writers certainly believed as they wrote this confession that in paragraph one, by establishing those great truths of our effectual calling and our calling to salvation, and then began to introduce us to this perseverance, Chapter 2 now leads us into uh, what our perseverance depends upon. And you'll notice there that the very first expression is, uh, in many circles, of course, a controversial statement, but of course is backed biblically. It says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. So this particular chapter, especially chapter 17 of the perseverance of the saints, has dealt with the idea of Is it us that is persevering through our own strength and through our own might, or is it God who is making us to persevere? And of course, it's the second of the two. It is God who's making us persevere through uh, this life and ultimately unto glory. So we've already seen in this in the chapter, all the way back in chapter three of the confession, when we learned about the decrees of God. Now, this has been quite some time ago, but chapter three of the confession deals with the decrees of God and his predestinating purposes. In other words, what he has decreed, what he has determined, uh, will not and cannot be hindered, nor can it be thwarted. Uh, man cannot, uh, so to speak, cannot knock God's purposes out of the way and say, now man is going to impose his purposes to displace God's purposes. Uh, but rather, it is God's purpose and God's predestinating purposes that are most certain. So remember, our perseverance is not based upon the certainty of us persevering in our own strength, but rather it is the perseverance of God. Uh, when we read there in 2 Thessalonians Two, you'll, you'll recall that one of the things that Paul was giving thanks to God about, uh, he calls them the beloved of the Lord because God hath from the beginning chosen you. Um, Paul was not afraid to use the decree of election. He wasn't afraid to declare that truth of God's choice. He wasn't afraid to say, uh, you know, that it was God partly and then you the other half, or it was God 99% and you 1%, or it was a 50-50 proposition. And uh, no, he says, because God, this is the reason of thanksgiving, brethren, he says, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now, that's what he's done. He, he is the one that has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And notice Paul does indicate how God works, especially in the decree of election, but also in the foundation of perseverance. He says, whereunto he called you by our gospel. So Paul is making it very clear that God's choice, God's electing grace, which guarantees the certainty of perseverance, if a person is certainly in Christ, uh, they are going to persevere into the end. He says it was by the call of the gospel. So the gospel is the very hinge in which God's electing grace swings upon. So this election guarantees perseverance. Foundation of perseverance is on the bedrock of the doctrine of election. You remove election out of the equation, you have no certainty of perseverance because the perseverance of the saints is based upon the electing grace of God, which is effectually 
demonstrated and carried out by the call of the gospel. So that's what Paul had in mind when he was writing there to uh, those at Thessalonica. And he also goes on, he says, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He's got in mind the ultimate completion of all of this to the glory of Jesus Christ and that one day when we will, in fact, truly and certainly be glorified. So Paul then writes, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So tradition here doesn't mean like like sometimes our churches determine what we, we just do it this way. He means the actual sound doctrine and teaching of what you've been taught. Stand firm on those things. Again, the perseverance of the saints did not arrive, arrive with or arise with John Calvin. It was already in place. The perseverance of the saints is biblical. Okay, so we've got to get our minds erased from the idea that the perseverance of the saints and election and you know, irresistible grace, all these things came because John Calvin invented them. They were already there because Paul believed in those. The apostle Paul taught the doctrine of perseverance. He taught the doctrine of grace. He taught the doctrine of election. So here we see this happening, and Paul says the result ought to be, stand fast, now our Lord Jesus Christ, even our Father which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation, good hope through grace. And then look at his purpose. He says, comfort your hearts, establish you. This should bring comfort to you that the perseverance of the saints is in fact certain. Okay, this is not something that is, I hope to make it, but we will make it because that is what has been determined. So whatsoever God has purposed to take place will most certainly take place. Let's go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and look at Isaiah 46. Now, a couple of these verses this morning will be ones that the confession writers actually footnoted. Some of these, are they're not footnoted, but they certainly go along with this first principle uh, that the, the very foundation of our perseverance is not based upon man's free will, but rather on the purposes of God. Isaiah 46, look at verse number 9. Isaiah writes these words, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Now, this is one of the clearest declarations of God saying, I do what I choose to do. My counsel will stand. He says, I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah never says, I will do whatever you are pleased with. I will do all of my pleasure, and whatever I determine will, in fact, stand. So this is a a, a glorious truth about the purposes of God are taking place and will most certainly come to pass. Isaiah establishes that fact, and of course, he was dealing with a number of things, dealing with judgment that was coming, and of course, with what he was doing with his people, Israel. 
The Apostle Paul, on the flip side of that, in the New Testament, uses a similar language in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, which again, these are familiar verses to most. Uh, This is not going to be new. But Paul, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, uh, he says uh, there in verse number 2, he said, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, or I'm sorry, I'm in... Go to Ephesians 1. I, had to, I was reading from Ephesians 3. Ephesians 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Paul is all but quoting the idea of the pleasure of his will based upon what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 46. So we first of all understand that the first foundation and probably the most important pillar of perseverance is the doctrine of election. Okay, so that's, that's the first expression in the confession there. The second expression is, it says, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. So if we understand that God's election and Christ's elect, electing grace The confession writers write here that it is based upon something which is unchangeable, all right? So this is unchangeable. God does not elect to salvation and then unelect or to disown or to disqualify or to remove. Once that individual has been placed into Christ, that person will remain in Christ for all of eternity. There is no getting into Christ and then falling away from Christ. Much of what we're learning and going to begin dealing with this morning when we deal with Hebrews 6. But the principle here is, is that the electing love of God is unchangeable and no one can separate believers from his love. Now that's what leads us to familiar passages like we see in Romans chapter number 8 in verses 38 and 39 which remind us of just how important this is. Uh, these are those, those jewels of truth uh, that when we uh, don't stop and consider and think about what Paul was writing about when he wrote this to the church at Rome. And again, the, 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 the principal connection between what we're talking about this morning and how we're going to deal with this in the morning worship service connected with Hebrews 6 we always have to keep in mind, don't lose sight of the power and the influence of Judaism on the church at the time, the influence of Judaism on the Gentile, and how those two systems were continually intertwined. Uh, there, there, was, there was such a, uh, such a divide between the Jews and the Gentiles that there was often a failure to remember Uh, what their hope was really founded upon. So when Romans 8 is penned by the Apostle Paul, he's not writing this as, hey, I just want to remind you of this. He's reminding them, especially those who were divided by the system of Judaism and that which is of and fully of Christ. So here's what Paul says, for I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul very clearly declares that he himself was persuaded of this truth. He himself was persuaded that I cannot nor can you be separated from the love of God there's nothing that can do this, no principality, there's nothing, no, no height, no depth, nor any creature can separate you from the love of God through or which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, you can't understand Romans 9 without understanding what we just read in Romans 8. So when you go across the page or turn a page into Romans 9 and you look at those familiar verses, such as verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Okay? The children being not yet born. That means this, this even perseverance, perseverance into the end, just like the electing grace of God, had nothing to do with what you did after you were born, but rather Paul says, those being not yet born, they hadn't done any good or evil because they haven't been born yet. But he said, because of that, the purpose of God according to election might stand. That means you cannot separate this, that the only reason you are in the love of Christ is because of the electing grace of God, because it was, you were neither good nor bad, right? Because this was determined before you were ever even born. Now, again, that opens up all of those boxes of what we've been learning about. But again, that according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Oftentimes people say, we hear so much about election. Why does there election so important because without the electing grace of God there is no perseverance of the saints without the electing grace of God there is no certainty of my eternal destination okay because it's all been it's 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 this this is what stand this is the pillar I'm standing upon this is the pillar that is underneath my feet that is the foundation so if I take that away I don't really have anything to stand on except what my own free will that's all I have. I'm either standing on the pillar of election or I'm standing on the pillar of my own free will. One of those pillars is going to collapse. Which one's going to collapse? The pillar of God's electing grace or the pillar of my free will? My the pillar of free will is going to collapse every single time. Because he says it's not of works. I, couldn't, I, I would have to erect the pillar to stand on it. Right? I would have to be the one who built the pillar to stand on it. What am I going to build it with? I can't build it with my works because he says the works aren't going to stand. So this election is what perseverance is basically founded upon. So the same concept here. So the third expression, we move into the third part of this. Uh, the third expression is upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. Notice the word efficacy or effectual. That means it accomplishes what it sets out to do. What was the effectual work? 
the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and the subsequent union with him. That's what the confession writers had in mind uh, when they brought this to the forefront. So it is based upon the merits of Christ. And again, uh, this isn't new to many of us, but again, it's a great reminder. Again, we go back to Romans 5. And Paul, before he even gets to Romans 8, those pinnacle chapters, we sometimes refer to them too. In Romans 5, he dealt with the results of faith uh, or justified, being justified before God. Romans 5 verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So now you're talking again. These are, these are verses about perseverance. These are things that are not just the initial conversion act, but that which is going to carry us on through all of eternity. That's what Paul had in mind even in Romans 5. Our Lord in John 14, believe it or not, Jesus himself believed in perseverance. He lived, earthly speaking, long before John Calvin ever lived. And yet he's saying the same things. The Apostle Paul is saying the same things. So John 14, verse number 19. Paul says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, Jesus' words led a man by the name of Judas, which the Bible clearly wanted us to differentiate between who the Judas was, clearly says, not Iscariot. Right? He wanted, to, he wanted us to know this is not the Judas that everyone thinks about. Because you realize if you go into the world that's even unchurched and you mention the word Judas, most people have an identification of who Judas is. Oh, you mean Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Specifically, the writer John says here, not Iscariot asked this question. Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Judas wanted to know how is this possible? How are we going to know you, but the world's not going to know you? And notice who's doing the manifesting. He says, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself? Even Judas knows that you, Jesus, are the one who has to manifest yourself, not the other way around. In other words, the world's not going to know you unless you manifest yourself to them, right? That's, Judas is asking a question that all of us asked. Now, the person who believes in total free will doesn't, have, doesn't believe that Jesus has to manifest himself. He just has to choose to accept him. But even Judas back then knew that this was not the case. Jesus answers and says, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. Now, there goes that great other box we're going to open. Well, doesn't God love the whole world equally? So that's all he has to have. That's not what Judas is asking, and that's not what Jesus responds with. He's responding with the reality that if a man actually loves me, he's going to keep my words. What's going to lead a person to keep the words of Jesus is Jesus manifesting himself to them. 
The whole question is going back and forth with this perseverance of, saint, of the saints applied to the whole world or just to his people. We learned that last week. It was on the PowerPoint. It applies to believers only. So the world can't say and claim the perseverance of the saints. Because first of all, they're not a saint. And God didn't promise that every single person would be saved. So what you have happening here, he goes on and he says, and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you being yet present with you. Now he's, he's giving them a hint, right? He's giving them a hint that things are getting ready to change. And then he introduces them to the comforter which will come. Okay, so again, not to go too far into that subject because that's another whole series on its own, but just to see the principles here that even Jesus himself was saying, if you're in me and I'm in you, you will be with me where I am also, which is what leads, remember the whole chapter 14 begins by Jesus saying, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for, for you. Judas, again, remember what he asked, how will you manifest yourself to us and not the whole world. That's the principle here. So we're we see it happening there. So Christ's effective intercession ensures that those are who are united to him will persevere to the end. It is of the will of the Father that he has given, that all he has given to Christ will never be lost, but will be raised on the last day. Christ's prayer in John 17, 24 is for his elect that they will be with him and see his glory. Jesus himself actually prays in John 17 that they would be with him and see his glory. The next expression in the paragraph, fourth expression, is the oath of God. Remember, when God makes a promise, that is an oath. When God makes a promise, he never breaks that promise. And because he makes an oath, he has made an oath or a covenant with his believers that they will be saved. It cannot be changed. It cannot be annulled. They cannot be disqualified. This oath is the very basis of our hope. My hope in Christ is not based upon if I prayed the prayer right. My hope is based on the oath that God has made. Now, Hebrews chapter 6, again, we're, we're prepping for what we're getting ready to start this morning. Because Hebrews 6, we're, we're going we're gonna to really have to spend some time dealing with this this morning. But in Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 19, here's the very oath of God, and this is where the believer's hope is found. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater. Now that is the key phrase. God could not swear by anything greater than himself. Right? That, that, is, that is the pinnacle. He couldn't swear by anybody greater. He swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise for men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Now, please notice he identifies the heirs of promise. That means there are certain people that are heirs of promise. He doesn't say that all the world is an heir of the promise. An heir is one who receives an inheritance. If a rich corporate executive dies this week, the odds are pretty good you are not in their will. 
odds are pretty good. Now, maybe you're going to get shocked and you're going to get a certified letter that says, you know, so-and-so CEO of this corporation died and you're their sole, you're their sole heir. The heirs are referring to those who are actually heirs. The writer of Hebrews would have never said the heirs of this promise if they weren't truly heirs of the promise. It would be like me promising you something with no intent of actually giving it to you. It would be like me looking at one of, this, one of you and saying, when I die, I'm going to leave everything to you. And then not fulfilling it. Is everybody following that line of reasoning? He's saying, I swore by myself. God swore by himself. That's the greatest oath I can take is to swear by who I am. But the heirs of the promise, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel. Now, we read about his counsel in Isaiah 46. And what did God say through Isaiah about his counsel? My counsel will what? It'll stand. Whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to do. Unlike you and I. We say things every week of what we're going to do, and then we don't do it. Every one of us. I'm going to do this, and we don't do it. We make promises to other people and don't do it. God says, my counsel will stand. The writer of Hebrews says this is an immutability of his counsel. Unchanging. That means not only is he not going to negate it, it doesn't change. He doesn't change the structure of it. He doesn't change the terms of it. He doesn't change who it's given to. It's immutable. Who else is immutable in the scriptures? Jesus Christ himself. I am, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Christ is not going to change in any way, shape, or form, and neither is God, nor will his promises. And confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, that's an immutable thing. It's impossible for God to ever lie a single time. That's immutable. That's the first one. That we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that's for another time, but you see, I want you to see the principles that even in the confession writers understood the paragraph is important of the oath of God. So that's the fourth one. The fifth expression is that the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them. So why do we get the Holy Spirit? Now, Oftentimes, the first response is, is to convict us of sin. It's correct to edify us. That's correct. But what is the primary reason? And what were the confession writers thinking about biblically? The Holy Spirit is given to believers as a guarantee of their final, ultimate salvation. The presence of the Spirit within me is for the purpose of declaring the final guarantee of my perseverance, my glorification, my entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's been given. Paul was writing about that even as we were reading there in Ephesians chapter 1, a little bit further down. He mentions this specifically when he makes mention of the Spirit and the seed of the Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13 Paul says, 
in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Remember the expression in Hebrews about heirs and inheritance? Paul's making the same argument in Ephesians that the writer of Hebrews was making, that this presence of the Spirit is a guarantee. When did you receive the Spirit? At your conversion. That's when you received that earnest down payment, or that earnest is what the King James here calls it, the earnest of our inheritance. Not the totality of what we're going to see, but as a seal. It's like the mark. It's like the king uh, in those, in, even in the Bible times, in order to declare if something had been decreed by a king, every king would have a ring with a signet on it. That signet would be unique to the kingdom and the nation of which that king was ruling over. In order to make something official and standing and authoritative, he would take the signet of that ring, would put it into clay, it would leave that indentation in the clay, that would be used to seal, and that was mean the king said it, that means that's what's going to be. The Holy Spirit is like the king's signet being placed right upon you. Does everybody get that concept? It's right on you. It's, it's, it's the same as a king saying, this is certain. So your seal that your God's is the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't see the seal on your forehead. I don't, you don't have it on your hands. It's the Spirit. It's the presence of the Spirit in you that's the seal that you're one of His. So, that's the guarantee. The believers receive that gift of the Spirit at their conversion, and this is from God guaranteeing or certifying that He guarantees their salvation. Do you see how everything I've said this morning, nothing has been dependent upon what you prayed, how'd you pray it, and did you pray right or long enough? All goes back to that main pillar, that pillar that's founded upon the electing grace of God. The sixth expression there is the expression about, and the nature of the covenant, we just read about the covenant, but this is a covenant of grace, which scripturally teaches us that before the foundation of the world, the covenant between God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, that Christ himself would be the sacrifice. He would be the one who would come, who would bleed and die for the sins of his people. Christ is the mediator of that new covenant. So it says, the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. We receive through Christ as our mediator, the mediator of the new covenant that believers receive their internal inheritance. Again, we go back to the book of Hebrews, why Hebrews is so foundational to everything we believe. It's why we're spending Sunday mornings going through Hebrews is because it is foundational upon a number of different things. But again, as I already mentioned about 15 minutes ago, don't lose sight of the reality of what was going on. Judaism was still very prevalent and there were a lot of people still adhering to Judaism and all of its quote-unquote works-based keep-the-law mentality. Okay, we've got to keep that in mind. If we, if we don't, and I'll say more about this when we get to the study this morning, if we don't keep that in mind when we read Hebrews, you're going to misinterpret it. 
If you, if you take the Jew out of Hebrews, you're going to miss the whole thing. It's, it's, it's key. So Hebrews 9.15 says this. And for this cause, he, that's Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called... Are we seeing the connections? They which are called, going all the way back to our, when we start our study in 2 Thessalonians, chosen to salvation, those which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Right? He doesn't say the whole world universally receives the promise of this internal inheritance. He says, no, those which are called. For where a testament is, there also must be of necessity by the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator live. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now again, he goes on further. And he mentions in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true. Remember, the, the mediator of the covenant, our, our guarantee is all because of the blood of Christ, not because of the blood of the calves and the bulls and the goats and the lambs in the Old Testament. Okay, they were figures. They were pictures. Our mediator of the new covenant is through Christ. That's the infallibility of it all. So all those considerations lead us and give us evidence that the foundation of perseverance is found upon that first great pillar. We've already read through the confession, but quickly, three main thoughts here. Okay, so these are all, this is just kind of like a quick review. So perseverance is not dependent upon free will. Okay, now free will as defined by scripture Okay, so that's, that's key number one. We need to understand what free will means. Number two, perseverance is based upon the immutability of the decree of election. Okay. Why? It's the electing grace of God's unchanging character of that. And three, perseverance flows from the unchanging character of God. All three of these stand as pillars upon that which really perseverance is standing upon. Now, those are very big, broad, 30,000-foot view ideas, right? That's not the nuts and bolts in the, in the deep, but it gives us an idea of how these things operate. Again, I've been, I've been giving you a lot of quotes from Sam Waldron just because I love the way he puts things. He says, we must approach this doctrine with the prior understanding that free will is not ultimate in salvation, but free grace. Grace, this is, this is so important. Grace moves and precedes our will, Okay. It's grace that acts upon man's will so that man is, in fact, acting upon his own free will to repent and accept Christ, but he would not act upon that free will to choose Christ had God not acted upon him. Does everybody understand that concept? Because that's, that's the key. That's what, that's what Waldron is saying about this, and that's what Scripture says about it. The Bible teaches that not free will, but God's grace is ultimate salvation. The confession states this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. Now, see, if you're, if you're looking at the confession, 
It doesn't say it doesn't depend upon free will at all. It just says it doesn't depend upon your own free will, which means apart from God moving upon you at all, you would never, ever, ever choose God. Okay, that's the principle. Since this is the presupposition of Scripture, this is the only presupposition from which the biblical evidence may be properly evaluated. Otherwise, we will read the condition of free will into all passages. Nothing will convince us. Now, I've shared with you, at one point, that's the way I would have read Scripture, is based upon and reading through my own free will apart from God into any and all passages. If you read Scripture that way, you're going to come to an incorrect conclusion about how you got in Christ. If you take it from the perspective of what Waldron is saying, based upon Scripture, that yes, free will is involved, but it's your will that was acted upon by God first, which made you willing to accept what God is saying. We didn't come here today willing to accept this apart from God acting upon our wills. No matter how intellectual and how educated we are. That's the concept. Nothing will convince you of anything different if you read the Bible with your own free will as the pillar. Remember I gave you the illustration of the pillar of grace, electing grace and the pillar of your own free will? If you approach Scripture thinking that pillar of free will is going to hold you, you're going to read free will into every single part of the Bible. And here's the conclusion you have to come to. If you're going to stand upon the pillar of free will, then you have to agree and believe that God is a universalist, which means ultimately everybody will ultimately be saved. All of these things go together. Now you say that might be a stretch, but if you read it into every passage now, that's the key. Every passage, not select passages, but if you read free will into every passage in the Bible, you're going to come to universalism. It's your only option. That would make some people just as mad as people saying you believe in election. Because they would say, there's no way everybody's going to be saved. See, you can't have it both ways. You've got to stand on one of two pillars. That's the idea here. So, the immutability of the decree of election is the strongest pillar or foundation in which the perseverance of the saints rests upon. Man is brought to faith only by the divine selection of God. Paul says concerning the people of God in Thessalonica that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. They were divinely chosen by God for salvation. Okay, now the mysteries of election, of God's choice, that's what humbles us because we don't understand why we're even in the faith at all. Okay? Quickly, foundational certainty. Because the decree of election is immutable, the believer's salvation is certain. Number two, because of the love of God the Father is unchangeable, the believer's salvation is certain. Number three, because the work of redemption by Christ is effectual, the believer's salvation is certain. Number four, because there is a vital union between Christ and his people, the believer's salvation is certain. Are you seeing a pattern? Certain, certainty, certain. If you're saved, you will persevere. Okay, now next we're going to do a paragraph three that deals with backsliding. And deals with those who seem to fall away, which is another really important mark we're going to look at. Because God has swore with an oath to keep his own, the believer's salvation is certain. Number six, because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the believer's salvation is certain. 
Number seven, because of the spiritual seed of God that resides in every soul from above, the believer's salvation is certain. I hope you walk out of here today saying the believer's salvation is certain, because I just said it seven times. That's intentional there to help us remember it. Okay, so those are the certainties. So theology matters, basic two questions here. Basic, not easy to answer. Number one, is the ground or the root for the security of the believer in any way dependent upon his or her own free will? But it's based on what we learned this morning. Is the ground or the root for the security or the perseverance dependent upon his or her own free will? As defined scripturally. <laughs> right? It seems easy. Plus, I've given you a pattern that I throw little curves inside it with the way I'm wording it, but anyway, dependent. Part of the key is the word dependent. Part of it may have to do with ground and roots. So think about that for a moment. Let's jump, to, let's jump to the second question. Is there better language to use rather than once saved, always saved? Have any of you ever used that language before? At some point in your life? Yeah? Is it a wrong statement? <laughs> so notice the question though. Is there a better language to rather than once saved, always saved to communicate the doctrine of perseverance or eternal security? Skylar. I'd say no on number one. Okay, so no on number one. Number two, um, perseverance of the saints is better language because once saved, always saved implies that you're saved by decision you made. Just because that's where that link is. That's where that, that's where that link goes. Yes, where is it right? Okay. So the, the, one of the grand arguments that's towards that, and they will say, well, perseverance of the saints isn't in the Bible. Is once saved, always saved? So do you see the difference? There is the idea here that some have tried to say the reason why something isn't is because the Bible doesn't use that terminology. But yet, depending on how you read it, we could use, people could use expressions like once saved, always saved, and yet it doesn't, doesn't say that in Scripture. Jesus himself doesn't tell his disciples, hey, once saved, always saved. Paul doesn't really use that terminology. Now, if you unpack it, am I, if I'm truly saved, if I'm truly in Christ, if I've truly been saved by the biblical structure... Is that a true statement? Sure. But even the word eternally is better than always. Always still, still can indicate a, a, a period, a time period where eternally there's no beginning, there's no end. 
Okay, so eternally saved indicates not only am I saved going forward, but I'm saved backwards. Don't forget eternity has, eternity has three phases. It has eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. Eternity is not just something you're looking forward to. You were saved from eternity past. See the difference? That's why these little things matter, because it indicates that there's a great difference. So um, two on those. Think about it. Skyler says the first one is no. So think about it for you. If you think that's no, you think that's yes. Use that as part of your study this week and see, if, see scripturally if you can come to a conclusion on what that would be. And then maybe even the second one, if there's something else you can think of there. Okay. So hopefully this is helpful and hopefully gives us a better idea of what this perseverance is. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then uh, we'll have some uh, time in between before we start at 11.15. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you have left us certainty with regard to our salvation, and that, Lord, we oftentimes find ourselves struggling, we find ourselves wondering if we have done right, said right, and, Lord, we know that our salvation is not dependent upon us, but dependent upon you, and we are thankful for these great doctrines. We're thankful that we can have a true hope today that is not based upon a pillar that we have built upon our own works and our own righteousness, but the pillar that is based upon the immutability of who God is, his unchanging character, and realizing that all things stand upon this election. Father, help us not to be afraid of these terms and help us not to run from them and not to, uh, to, to stand boldly for them because we know that's what your word teaches. And Lord, we just thank you now for this time we've had this morning and pray you'll prepare our hearts for our worship service this morning. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.